Good afternoon. It's 4.30, and you're listening to KDNK. It's time for Valley Voices. I'm your host, Amy Haddon Marsh, and joining me today by phone is Dr. Naoko Wake. She is the Associate Professor of History at Michigan State University, and she's an historian of gender, sexuality, and illness in the Pacific region. She's authored several books, including American Survivors, Trans-Pacific Memories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. She joins me today to talk about the book published this year. Welcome to Valley Voices, Dr. Wake. Good afternoon, Amy. I'm glad to be here. Yes, I'm very excited. Um, first, just to let listeners know, this month was the, is the 76th anniversary of the U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They were the first deployed atomic bombs in history. So, Dr. Wake, 76 years after these devastating events, your work focuses on American survivors of Japanese and Korean descent. Why did you choose this topic? Yeah, thank you for the question, Amy. Um, I'm happy to answer. Um, I really wanted to focus on Asian American survivors who are either born U.S. citizens or U.S. citizens by naturalization um, because I wanted to show that uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945 is not just a a matter of U.S. fighting against war uh, against Japan during the wartime or Japan fighting against U.S., which usually is the way many people think of World War II in the Pacific theater. I really wanted to show the global, international, diverse, wide-ranging impacts of the bombing uh, that we don't really know a lot about. So, uh, for instance, although it's not really widely known, one in 10 survivors are Korean people. And they were there in either cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki because of Japanese colonization of Korean Peninsula from 1910. So there are many people who are not Japanese who perished as a result of the bombing of those cities. And there are many Americans uh, who were in Japan for various reasons. Uh, Many people are just in in Japan for uh, the reasons varying from seeing their extended family members. Uh, Many of them are young children, uh, so they wanted to see their grandparents Maybe they were ill. Maybe they were uh, trying to deal with family issues like inheritance of, you know, uh, belongings that uh, belong to the family. So they needed to go back there to attend to those family matters. As you probably know, by looking around ourselves, immigrants go back and forth. And as a country of immigrants, when it comes to the United States, it was very common practice for people to move around even during the time of the war or years leading up to the war. So that's the reason why there are many people who are not Japanese, even Americans included, who are in either cities as of 1945. And I really wanted to highlight that diverse nature of the bombing and the the diverse nature of the lifestyle are being affected by the bombing by looking at this particular group of Asian-American survivors. 
Well, it's a fascinating book, and I have to admit that I have not yet finished reading it. It's not something you can just sort of zip through, especially if you know a little bit about um, the nuclear legacy. Uh, Some of the ideas in your book were new to me, even though uh, I engaged in anti-nuclear activism for two decades and have met Hibakusha. Um, Mm -hmm. One of those ideas, but I think before we can continue into these ideas i would can we talk about hibakusha for those who might have no idea what that is what is hibakusha yeah so uh hibakusha is a japanese term that essentially means people who receive the bombing and um, receive is a kind of a awkward um sounding word in english but it's more like exposed to the bombing so people who are who happen to be there and who happen to be on the receiving end of the bombing, but also the radiation. That's what essentially what hibakusha means. And, uh, you know, Japanese term is hibakusha, but in American English, it's oftentimes translated into uh, survivors or bomb survivors or A-bomb survivors. And in depending on the context, it means uh, quite a few different things. Sometimes it means Strictly speaking, people who are receiving end of the Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombing. But in other cases, it could mean much broader range of people. Sometimes it means people whose lives are affected because they were downwinders. There are many nuclear tests that U.S. government conducted in either Western or Southwestern states uh, during the Cold War uh, in 1950s and 1960s and beyond. And there are many people who are unknowingly exposed to the fallout, the radiation effect because of those testing. So uh, sometimes those people are being referred to as survivors or hibakusha in either in English or Japanese. And other times people who are affected by uh, nuclear power plant disasters, such as the one that happened in Fukushima or Chernobyl, for instance, they may be referred to as hibakusha or survivors as well. So it depends on the context what exactly it means, but it has much to do with that long-term effect as well as the short-term effect of radiation that uh, it has on human bodies and cultures and societies. Wow. I didn't know that downwinders and those impacted by events like Fukushima or Chernobyl uh, were considered, could actually call themselves hibakusha. Uh, and now it mm-hmm. kind of comes together a little bit because, as I mentioned to you in a in a previous conversation, um, when I was uh, uh, protesting uh, nuclear testing out at the Nevada test site in the late 90s and well, late 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s, some hibakusha from Japan came and spoke with us. And that's mm-hmm. when I first uh, learned of the Japanese hibakusha. Now I'm thinking, oh, no wonder they came out here, because there were a lot of downwinders who attended those gatherings at the test site. And, you know, we we talked a lot about uh, nuclear power and all of that and how, you know, how dangerous that is. And now I'm connecting a little bit why um, the hibakusha came and spoke with us, because perhaps they felt a little bit of a kindred spirit with some of the other survivors of nuclear accidents. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right. There is a sense of 
alliances or empathy that seems to uh, go across different groups of Hivaksha. And uh, I can tell you that it has a long history. It's not something that's happening only recently. There are actually alliance-building efforts between uh, Japanese and Korean-American survivors and the people who were um, you know, affected by the U.S. Uh, the Bravo test that happened in 1950s in the Pacific Ocean. Right. And there are many uh, indigenous people, Pacific Islanders, who were affected by that. And they, in the 1970s, tried to create alliances for anti-nuclear purposes. So that's one way in which different groups of survivors started to come together, again, based on this sort of broad uh, notion or definition of survivor food. Um, so uh, those are some of the things that you described for us now. Um, uh, kind of a, a sort of contemporary version of this long-term, um, you know, existing collaboration that existed among different groups of survivors. You know, the nuclear issue, the nuclear legacy, the nuclear chain is, even though it's it's incredibly terrifying and devastating, it's fascinating. And when I, you know, reading your book, I'm thinking, wow, it's a heck of a lot more complicated then I even thought about it. But, you know, I, some of the ideas, as I was saying, are new to me um, from your book. And, and one of those ideas is the impact of silence or the mm-hmm. hesitancy to speak about suffering. And in an op-ed that you wrote this month for The Hill, you mentioned a woman you interviewed who ran out to your car after you interviewed her to exclaim right. sort of about what I thought was the relief of, quote, being seen, end quote. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, there's a lot in your question, so I hope I can do it justice in responding to your uh, wonderful question. So I think, first of all, um, when you look at survivors of any background, there's a long history of silence attached to them that shaped their history. So even Japanese survivors uh, remain silent because they are ashamed of being injured. They are ashamed uh, that society looked down on them, thinking that they might uh, be deformed or they might have a bad influence, genetic influence on future generations. So they shouldn't get married or they shouldn't reproduce. There are many social biases against survivors in Japan. So uh, it took the Japanese survivors a long time to come out and say, I am a survivor, I'm suffering from radiation illnesses, and I need your attention because I need your help vis-a-vis Japanese government and other members of Japanese society. So that was the case with Japanese survivors. If you look at Korean survivors, not to mention Asian American survivors, the history is even more strongly colored by persistent silence because the amount of social shame, uh, stigmatization, marginalization has been much larger and more extreme and more various in those uh, Korean and American societies. And that's one reason why silence is a, a huge theme in my book, American Survivors, and I, I think that's that's important to note that um, the silence is something that really still 
is very persistent. Even when I talk to American survivors uh, in many states in, in the U.S., uh, I talk to many survivors in Hawaii, many in California, but there are people in, you know, Michigan, Ohio, and other, um, you know, states and out, outside of the Western, uh, U.S. West Coast. So um, there are many I talk to, but many of them felt that their uh, voices have not been sufficiently heard. For some people, you know, I'm talking about older people, right? Uh, because it's a long time ago, as you mentioned earlier, it's been 76 years. And even though many of the people I talked to were young children at the time of the bombing, they were very old by now, right? So they are in their 80s, and some of them are in their 90s. It struck me, it surprised me, it shocked me to learn that some of those survivors I talked to were talking to me, a stranger, right, a history professor from Michigan State University, for the first time in their life because they have not had a willingness or even courage to share their survivorhood as the experience of the bomb, even with their spouses, even with their you know, children, even with their grandchildren because of the fear of stigmatization. So that's part of the history of silence. And I, I do say, however, that silence is not inaction. Silence is not just purely negative. Because in Asian and Asian American culture, in many of them anyway, silence could be a space for healing as well as hiding. So that's another thing I wanted to really emphasize in my work, in that in American society, speaking up and coming out is almost universally good, right? It feels like you are you know, claiming your identity authentically, and to do that, you need to speak up and let other people know where you stand. Whereas in Asian or Indian American cultures, sometimes it could be even more assertive if you stay silent. For instance, somebody asks you a question about how you feel about being a survivor, how you feel about being affected by the bomb. If the person remains silent, it's oftentimes seen as a form of assertion that you are actively saying that I do not want to say anything by staying silent. Or even it could be seen as I need a space to be quiet or not speak out right now because of whatever reasons uh, that person might have. So it could be seen as a very assertive form of expression, as a matter of fact in Asian or Asian American cultures. So that's the reason why I wanted to show how this is a way for people to claim their identity as survivors by being silent, not despite the fact that they are silent, uh, as a way to create a space where they can heal or they can find a way to uh, come to terms with their experiences as survivors. So um, that's some of the things that I wanted to highlight when it comes to things that you mentioned in terms of silence and in terms of how uh, it shaped uh, Asian Americans or Asian survivors' lives. It's fascinating. I just want to remind listeners, it's 4.45. You're listening to KDNK. This is Valley Voices. I'm Amy Haddon Marsh, and my guest today is author and professor Dr. Naoko Wake, and we're talking about um, her book, which is this incredible book called American Survivors, Trans-Pacific Memories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I must say I've been practicing how to pronounce Hiroshima since we talked the other day. I just, Mm -hmm. I'm trying. (laughs) 
No, it sounds good. <laughs> Thanks. I've been practicing You're it doing very in good. the car. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I uh, I wanted to ask you, is anyone in your family Hibaksha? You were born and raised in no. Japan. No, they are not. Hmm. So people often ask me that because it feels like this kind of book ought to have some personal connection. Um I can tell you, however, I do not. And uh, with an exception of my grandmother, who was uh, alive uh, during the wartime, and she was uh, in the countryside, rural area of Hiroshima Prefecture, which is much far north compared to the uh, Hiroshima city. And uh, so, therefore, she was in the area, and she remembers seeing the mushroom crowd on the day of uh, August 1945, even though she was far away, mushroom cloud was large enough for her to witness. And of course, at that point, she did not know what it was that she is seeing, that um, that it turned out to be a mushroom cloud as we know it historically. But um, that's the only personal connection that I have through my family. What a terrifying sight that must have been. Does she ever talk yeah. about it? No. Um, that's another um, interesting fact now that you mention it, in that those things tend to be sort of mentioned at the end of the conversation that was about something entirely different, right. as if it was an afterthought, it was a passing idea. And that tends to be the times when very important things or striking things get to be mentioned. And I think that, again, goes back to what you asked me earlier, which is the culture of silence that surrounds the issue of the bomb uh, because of various reasons, um, stigmatization and social marginalization included, um, but also the ways in which you know society has been not paying attention to them. Uh, they have been dealt with, with uh, ambivalence, I would say, because especially in American society, um, you know, American government decided to use the bomb and they have, they claim they have a reason that they needed to make that decision because of military necessity, because of the uh, military justification, there was a, a good enough reason for the U.S. government to use those weapons. But I think many American people continue to engage with the issues of the bomb um, because of the fact that there are other kinds of questions that linger on, which is which are the moral questions. What exactly. is the nature of the nuclear weapons? And those questions coexist with military questions that are more around the question of was it the right decision for the U.S. government to use the bomb? And almost parallel to that is a moral question that kind of lingers under the surface, but still very persistent in that was it morally acceptable for any human society to develop and use that weapon against each other. And and I think that uh, kind of comes back to um, the sort of uh, power of nuclear weapons and power this history still continues to carry, even in today's society. There's a lot of power in that history. And, you know, when we were talking the other day, you know, staying with this, the uh, moral questions topic, um, you were talking about how 
the um, the problems, the impacts of an atomic bomb, a nuclear bomb, is not over after the bomb mm-hmm. goes off. Can you speak to that a little more? Of course, um, I'm happy to. Uh, there are maybe two main ways in which I can respond to your question. So one is that in the most immediate sense, um, nuclear weapon is not something that destroys uh, at the moment of explosion. It has long-term effects, not only on human bodies, but also on soil, water, air, environment as a whole. And we still do not know how much of the damage that uh, a nuclear power can do to both humans and the environment. So there is an ongoing research being conducted uh, about the effect of radiation, uh, but it's still ongoing, which means it's inconclusive. And also we know for sure that there are uh, certain kind of nuclear waste that gets produced by nuclear power plants or nuclear industry more generally that we don't know what to do. Um, there are many discussions among scientists about what to do. Are we going to put it underground? Are we going to put it underwater? Are we going to shoot it out to the universe? There are incredible number of theories and ideas being articulated because of the fact that we created nuclear weapons, but we don't know how to do deal with the remains after you use them. So that's one thing that's very long-term and unknown. And another reason why I think nuclear weaponry issues are still very relevant today is that we depend on it. Let's face it, right? We do, America and American government especially, rely on the fact that they are the nuclear super world, uh, power in the world stage. So much so that um, we don't even necessarily think about it, but I mean, that's the reason why we uh, oftentimes uh, incline to act as we as if we were world police, right? And people can have different opinions mm-hmm. about this, whether or not they agree or disagree. But the fact of the matter is that that kind of superpower that U.S. holds in the global stage today very much depend on the fact that we have the most nuclear head in the world, right? So if you give up on that, meaning that if you go completely anti-nuclear, we won't be able to hold on to the status quo, and that could be very anxiety-provoking. Um, so that's the part of the reason why this moral question, in addition to the military question, justification question, keep on coming back over and over again, because deep down in our heart, in our mind, we know, especially American people know, that this is a fundamental question that speaks back to our own sense of security and safety. And then there are many moral questions that keep on arising, because, again, there is this other aspect of long term, which sounds very destructive, right? Uh, it's not good for humans. It's not good for environment. So what does it mean for us to be dependent on such a dangerous power? That kind of conflict, that kind of contradiction is the reason why I think it still is very relevant today. Well, 
We only have a couple of minutes left. I told you that this half hour would go very fast, and I would love to Mm -hmm. talk with you. Like I said the other day, we we need a workshop on this. But one other question I have is that um, has this how has this shown up or has it shown up the the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings has this shown up as generational trauma in the Asian community yeah absolutely i think it's it's i haven't really um thought about that framework generational trauma but i think it is um it's it's appropriate for us to think in those terms I think it is true that it's a generational trauma that uh, generated not only the feeling of being hurt and injured, but also a lot of critical self-reflection. Um, it raised a lot of different kinds of questions for the American people, right? Because this is a country that made a decision to use the bomb. Um, same intense reflection is applicable to, to the people who are affected by it, uh, Japanese, Korean, and Chinese, and American people included. Um, what does it mean to be the survivor of the first nuclear weapons used against uh, human beings, uh, including many civilians? What does it mean for us to be survivors? I think it was a lot of reflection. Uh, that came out of that generational trauma that you you mentioned. Um, some people stay quiet, and some people uh, suffer from uh, mental distress and disorders because of that trauma. But other people come out and become activists or support other survivors, like some other many survivors have done in America. That's actually one of my best uh, favorite part of my book, In American Survivors, in that. Trying to overcome the generational trauma, um, many Asian American survivors uh, created coalitions among themselves, but across national borders. They created coalitions with Korean survivors. They created coalitions with Brazilian, Chilean survivors. Uh, It's an incredible network, international network of survivors that I think became possible in part because of the the need for them to figure out what it means to be traumatized as a whole generation and what would be the best way to respond to that. Well, we are out of time. And I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Naoko Wake, um, Associate Professor of History at Michigan State University and author of several books, including American Survivors, Trans-Pacific Memories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. And uh, yes, again, thank you for having me.